Well, good afternoon, everyone. We'll jump right in. Uh, the the 2.45 time slot, so get your coffee, take your adrenaline shot, do what you need to do. Um, we'll try and keep this entertaining and interesting. Uh, my far left, um, we have Kristen Douglas. She is a director in the strategic client group at Tortoise. Uh, they, Tortoise focuses on essential assets and income investing, and Kristen is primarily responsible for en enhancing key account relationships in New York. Then we have Gaston Yardon, who is a vice president of closed end funds at Naveen. We have Michael Osi. He's a managing director and head of FIG ECM at Morgan Stanley. And in that capacity, Michael covers permanent capital vehicles generally, including listed closed end funds. And then, of course, Kevin Kramer, who's the head of wirehouse and bank platforms at FS Investments. So just kicking it off, I, th I thought we'd start with Michael, talk about you know, the current overview of the closed end fund landscape. And you know, what, I, what I think I'd like to get out of you, Michael, um, from the perspective of the banks, can you tell us how the banks are thinking about the closed-end fund market right now and what it takes to build a syndicate around a product and also how the economics have shifted in recent deals? Yeah, listen, it's a good question. I'll, I'll kind of speak from the Morgan Stanley view, although I think this probably echoes um, the, the general consensus ac across the street. I, I think, generally speaking, the tone that you'll probably hear from myself and, and the rest of the uh, participants on the panel and potentially on other panels today is a lot more constructive than it was uh, even a year ago. I think I actually passed up the invitation for this because I was afraid of the questions that we would get asked last year. Um, but the market has continued to evolve. And so, as you can all appreciate, for call it two and a half years, really in response to pushback from investors, a lack of capacity generally, uh, as a result of poor performance of listed closed-end fund vehicles that were perpetual, obviously, in structure, we migrated to a different product, uh, in, in large part driven uh, by Nuveen, which was the most uh, pro prolific issuer over that time period, and it was pure term product. So equity, but it had a defined life, uh, kind of three to seven years in, in terms of duration. And we really tried, we were limited to asset classes that fit within that three to seven year wrapper. And so it was predominantly high yield and uh, bank loan product. And it really, the, the objective, of course, was to try to um, try to build some receptivity to the closed-end fund product in a world where you know, investors largely shunned it uh, in lieu of, of other products like open-end mutual funds. And you know, in large part, that succeeded. <clears throat> what we saw really take shape towards the end of last year, um, not necessarily a response to people not liking the term product, but really just a response to where we are in the credit cycle, the market started to demand different asset classes. And in exchange for uh, kind of getting exposure to different asset classes, they started to tolerate longer term structures. And so we adapted. Um, I think it's still probably too early to uh, really declare victory, but really beginning with uh, a structure that River North embraced, and now uh, both PIMCO and Tortoise have have also adopted. Um, you know, we, we've now, uh, the market has migrated to slightly longer term. It's still, there's a headline term. Most of these deals have been 12 year in nature, but there's an extension feature at the end um, that, that 
pursuant to a condition can go and, and extend into perpetual, and that's a really good sign. I think Mo Morgan Stanley is not comfortable kind of committing to this audience that there, there is life to a perpetual product once again, uh, but there is kind of, the, the end is in sight. And so I think that's really good news. We're gonna be uh, very disciplined about what we bring to market in an effort to make sure that nothing breaks. Uh, we're gonna be responsive to kind of market, market cycles, but I think we feel really good about the progress that we've made. One structural feature to a question that we've adopted in order to help kind of lubricate the, the market is really this NAV pricing, which you many of you may be familiar with, but in a nutshell, uh, the managers that we're partnering with have, have agreed to bear the full sales load associated with the underwriting. Um, it's technology, by the way, that even in non-blind pool structures like BDCs and, and REITs, that they have largely adopted so that there's no drag at IPO, which is helpful from an aftermarket performance perspective. And so that is starting to bear fruit, not just in the context of the executions, but in terms of that performance. And so we are optimistic. Um, as I said, I, I think we're, we're not necessarily in a deal a month type of market, but we're doing everything we can kind of streetwide uh, to, to help resurrect the product. Yeah, just one quick follow-up um, on the NAV pricing. You know, the concern has always been traditionally how, how these are gonna trade in the secondary market. Um, you know, after the overallotment period ends, do you see any evidence that NAV pricing has improved um, that future of closed-end funds? Yeah, I, I think, to, to be perfectly honest, after the, the penalty bid is lifted and after the green shoot period, it's, it's tough to argue that it has kind of an ongoing, durable benefit to how these securities trade. I, I think from, from our point of view, it really pivots very quickly to how is the business performing and how is the fund uh, being managed. Great. Um, Kristen and Gaston, I'll, I'll throw this one out to you, but you know, given what Michael just described, how should sponsors who are kind of active in this space think about it now? Um, and what do you think new, new entrants who might be considering it for a whole variety of reasons, not the least of which is things like the liquidity rule in the open-end fund world have made those products more expensive for managers and you know, taken some of the economics away, which were already thin to begin with, can you guys walk us through how you think about this? Uh, sure. Uh, I, I think Michael hit, hit it on the nose in terms of making closed-end funds more investor-friendly. I think we're all in agreement that the, uh, the NAV pricing or the no-load feature is, is a nice way to get more participants into this IPO market. So it, it, it is something where, from Nuveen's perspective, we have to be mindful of fronting the, the upfront deal costs but I think we can all agree that at the end of the day, what we want to do is create good vehicles that not only trade well and can raise a lot of money on IPO, but trade well in the secondary market. So from our perspective, we want to be sensitive to the upfront costs and partner with Morgan Stanley and others and, and make it an investor-friendly solution. But we also have to be mindful of Questions such as, you know, who is willing, what, what type of new participant in the closed-end fund market is truly willing to, to ded dedicate to the business and pay that upfront uh, deal cost and, and write that check at the beginning of the offering. So I think, you know, some of the questions we might have to consider is, it, is this new, are these new structural enhancements catering to perhaps the larger closed-end fund players? And what does that mean for smaller niche uh, you know, fund sponsors. So those are some uh, outstanding questions, but ultimately, 
everything's driven by the secondary market, and if these new closed-end funds trade well in the secondary, secondary market, I think we have structural features that we can build upon and grow the business. And I would just add to Gaston's point that, you know, the fees and the structuring are certainly going to be important considerations going forward. Um, I also think that it is a big financial commitment, so you need to have conviction in the investment strategy, and that's not only from an investment perspective, but from a distribution perspective, from an education perspective, as well as aftermarket support. Um, I think that's important for the asset manager to consider. And just another thing on structuring, I would say, is that um, you really need to determine if the strategy you are running really necessitates the closed-end fund wrapper. And if so, um, being able to articulate why that's beneficial to investors um, and why it's going to make the most sense for the strategy. Great. And Kevin, I'll turn to you now, but, but given FS's traditional position as a non-traded sponsor, having been in that game for quite some time, um, what are the trends that you're seeing and, and you know, what, what do you think help ex helps explain the growth in that particular sector? So interesting um, trends, and again, FS is, is in traditionally the non-traded space or less liquid space. Um, one thing that I think has been dramatic in increasing the growth of that and just as one fact, Interval Funds has, uh, have approximately $27 billion in AUM right now. And last year had 27% AUM growth. Uh, 34 active Interval Funds were net positive flows last year, or last quarter, and 20 were net negative. So we're seeing a lot of new entrants into the less liquid space. A lot of them are larger traditional managers. Um, Frankly, I think that is because of the lack of issuance of traditionally listed closed-end funds. Um, asset managers are looking for opportunities to bring their better strategies, and where are the open holes? The key, however, is to determine the best strategy and then find the right structure. Um, we're, at FS, uh, we're agnostic as far as structure. We have non-traded REIT, uh, daily NAV REIT. We have uh, interval funds. We also have liquid alt mutual funds. So I think what we're seeing is some of the larger players are taking some time out, finding um, a strategy that they feel makes sense for a less liquid vehicle, and are saying they can't raise capital in the traditional listed closed-end space. Maybe we'll take a crack at coming into the interval space. The challenge with that is when you have a sales force that is solely dedicated to traditional products, uh, click buying, purchasing for the advisor and for the investor, and now you have to give them a product that requires either explanation or paperwork or as an alternative, if your salesperson has two choices to sell, a mutual fund or an interval fund or something that requires a signature, what are they going to choose? So I think we're going to see a pullback from some of the larger traditional managers away from the less liquid space uh, as we see a resurgence of the uh, traded closed-end funds. Yeah, I guess, though, that there's, there's a way to make those non-traded vehicles a little bit easier on the distribution side. I mean, you can have electronic signatures, and I've seen features in the market that, you know, help to kind of, I think, solve that a bit. Um, they haven't perhaps caught on as maybe they could or should. Um, I, I guess just one thing about, you know, the, 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 the liquid or semi-liquid nature, um, how should managers think about you know, performance and yield in light of the fact that you're clearly sacrificing exchange listing liquidity. Um, you know, how do you balance that when you're designing products at FS? 
Well, clearly you have to be focused on does the strategy belong in a less liquid wrapper. We can't just put something there that doesn't just for the sake of doing it. Um, it has to be either illiquid credit or other illiquid uh, investment um, uh, investments that make sense to be in a less liquid vehicle. Uh, that's number one, the hardest thing to, to judge because a lot of times we'll see advise, uh, managers who want to partner with us that have great strategies but no reason whatsoever we should take a fully liquid strategy and bring it into a less liquid vehicle. We know that that'll be a challenge for gatekeepers, uh, a challenge quite frankly for investors. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is as we design these funds, uh, it's a trade-off between yield and total return. In the listed closed-end fund space, it's yield-driven. Frankly, that's the way it's always been. Uh, very few total return focused listed closed end funds. On the less liquid side, you have more flexibility to bring those growthier strategies where you're more total return focused. So you do have a little different of uh, opportunity for investment sectors. Okay, great. I'm gonna turn back to my, uh, my duality over there, Kristen and Gaston, and I'm gonna ask about the, you know, really fund sponsors obviously value permanent capital. Um, that's always been true. Closed-end funds these days, um, you know, if they have a term, and that term is 12 years, that's not necessarily permanent capital. Um, now they can always be perpetual theoretically, but we've moved away from what I'll call the real perpetual closed-end fund model, um, which had, you know, its benefits and negatives. And I, and I, I am curious about, you know, asset managers, given what we've just discussed, what are the core benefits of closed-end funds today for an asset manager, given where the market is? I think you, you hit it on the, the nail on the head with regards to we all want stickier assets. We all want more permanent capital. So that's a clear benefit from a fund sponsor perspective. But ultimately, we want to drive a, a product that does trade well in the secondary with the structural enhancements that we're talking about. And, and Kevin, you mentioned some of the listed traditionally closed-end funds have traded purely on income because it's all about the monthly cash flow that you can deliver to investors. But fortunately and, and interestingly, the latest vintage of, of offerings have had a, a capital appreciation component, which I think investor have re has resonated with, with investors. So we are trying to get creative with respect to what goes inside a listed closed-end fund wrapper so that it can come with not just good monthly cash flow, but in addition, some kind of capital appreciation component so that you're all in total return is, is attractive. Yeah, and I would just add to that, I think, a key benefit for us as an asset manager um, at Tortoise with our most recent fund, which is the Essential Assets and Income Term Fund, is that that portfolio is designed to have about 60% of the portfolio invested in private or direct investments. So having that 12-year term feature really enables us as the asset manager to manage the life cycle of those investments over the term of the fund. Um, and that's certainly a benefit to us in terms of managing volatility and also not being subjected to forced liquidations from asset flows. Um, similarly, I think that's also a benefit to the investor. So the investor is able to gain access to differentiated investments that maybe typically are only reserved for accredited investors or qualified purchasers, and they're able to do so at lower minimums and fees and with higher trans or greater transparency than, say, a traditional or private fund. So I think, you know, that is certainly a benefit to the investors. And at the same time, there is a 12-year term for the manager, 
but there's not a 12-year term for the investor, right? They can still get out if they need to have liquidity needs, they're able to sell in the secondary market. I guess just one follow-up question. I mean, you know, you can answer this in your own capacity and not speaking on behalf of your employers, but when you, when you launch a 12-year term vehicle, is the manager's expectation, or, you know, is the way that they model it out, are they planning to extend that vehicle? Are they thinking that, you know, we'd like this to be perpetual? I assume the answer is yes, but I'm just curious how you, how you kind of think about the long-term time horizon for these vehicles now that they theoretically have a liquidation date. I would say we're pretty conservative at Nuveen, so I think we would model it out. Of course you are. <laughs> as a 12-year uh, term. So we wouldn't want to just assume it's naturally going to become a permanent uh, vehicle. So, you know, that's how we would probably approach it in terms of a P&L. And for our fund, we did the 12-year term with um, the ability for two one-year extensions um, should there be a market environment that would deem that necessary and would be in the best interest in the investors. After that, there would be an ability for the investors to tender their shares. And then if there was a certain amount of capital as deemed appropriate by the board, um, in conjunction with our partners, like Morgan Stanley, um, there would be an ability to convert that to perpetual, perpetual, but investors would have the ability to tender before that. Kevin, turning to you, you, you touched on it a bit, but um, just in terms of considerations for asset managers when they're thinking about the right wrapper, to use Kristen's term, um, I think you're uniquely positioned to really delve into that question. Um, and I'm just you know, wondering, Obviously, the BDC market has had some, gets a lot of attention uh, given, you know, the fact that its asset size is not as large as the class that we're talking about today, but they have had a lot of beneficial changes recently, including increased leverage. And if you've got strategies that could fit into a BDC or, say, a non-traded closed-end fund, you know, how do you guys at FS think about that? I think we kind of think about it very similarly to a lot of other non-traditional asset managers. Um, again, we start out looking at strategy and then we determine structure. But that being said, it's an interesting point you bring up. We are thinking about you know, some strategies today, whether they would fit into a BDC wrapper, um, whereas we wouldn't have thought about that maybe two years ago. Uh, I don't know that we'll wind up going forward with that structure. but. It's really a very large commitment to decide to be in a less liquid vehicle from the issuer standpoint as well as the underwriter standpoint, you know, our partners at, at Morgan and the other, other firms. The due diligence process for a very similar strategy that is in a liquid vehicle like a listed closed-end fund versus uh, an a, a interval fund, uh, very different. It typically goes through the alternative investment group. Uh, it requires a much longer length of time, much deeper, deeper level of diligence uh, than I had seen from my previous life. Um, so I think uh, when we think about what wrapper to put things in, we try to go for what is the easiest to execute for the client and the individual investor. As, as we touched upon a little bit earlier, a lot of the issues with less liquid vehicles and whether it be signature or other uh, requirements for investors are mostly driven or largely driven by the technology that exists at our partner firms. Uh, a lot of our partner firms have been around for decades, if not hundreds of years, hundred years, 
uh, and they've got technology systems that they've either inherited through uh, mergers and, and acquisitions, et cetera, that they're still combining two platforms together, uh, let alone investing in technology to make uh, a less liquid vehicle uh, point and click as opposed to signature. On top of that, uh, because you take a strategy, make it less liquid, it's also putting the risk keepers, the gatekeepers, in position that they may want a client to acknowledge understanding they can only get out 5% per quarter in perpetuity until there's a liquidity event. So they may be putting a higher suitability standard on these products than legally is required, which again uh, may make sense from, from a standpoint of educating our investor base, but all these things go into our factors as to whether something should be in a REIT, a BDC, interval fund or even a liquid alt mutual fund, just determining it, does the strategy fit into that structure properly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm gonna throw you a, a tiny curveball, but one you can handle. Um, you know, we're, we're, you're kind of walking around distribution and how important distribution is when designing and thinking about products. I mean, you've seen it from a whole host of different angles. Um, you know, I, I think the whole broker-dealer community uh, post-DOL, post when it was alive and now that it's dead. Um, you've got regulation BI coming out any day now. Um, you know, FINRA has been, over, been all over broker-dealers for years, well, since 2007. And I think that entire industry has gotten, you know, really, really squeezed. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what the trends you're seeing in distribution are and how, and how you should conceptualize that if you're a manager and you don't have a massive amount of in-house distribution power. Um, I think there are a lot of great third-party independent distribution firms out there. Um, they've got a lot of opportunity. They're very well-versed in products. Um, that being said, I think the model that we have at FS, again, this is a shameless plug for our firm, obviously, uh, it works best. We have some in-house proprietary management. We partner either through joint ventures or sub-advisor relationships with best-in-class institutional managers, and we have our own distribution organization with 150 professionals, um, 25 external sales force that are dedicated to selling nothing but alternatives. And I think the challenge is for your third-party distributor that hasn't traditionally been in alts to sell alts is, is challenging. So for smaller managers that don't have their own distribution, and we've seen quite a few very successful firms, smaller firms hire just a handful of uh, sales folks that get to focus on the higher net worth channels, and that makes sense. But if you really want to democratize alternatives down to the accredited investor on a broad base, you need to build or buy a, a decently sized distribution sales force. Uh, Kristen and Gaston, uh, you know, would you two mind picking up on that topic as well? Because I do think it's critical and something that, you know, years ago when there were what I'll call specialty finance asset managers bringing public closed-end funds to market, I, I don't think they understood or anticipated how important distribution would be. Yeah, abs absolutely. It's strength in numbers. You really have to have a, a sales force that knows the strategy and can articulate well to, to financial advisors. And at Nuveen, we also take great pride in not just being able to sell and, and, and raise a, a successful offering in partnership with with Morgan and others in the street, but ultimately we want to be supportive of the secondary. So as, as good as our sales force can be with regards to IPO, we also want them to be knowledgeable when addressing the funds that financial advisors recently bought, whether it's six months ago, three months ago, three years ago, 
it's really a, a, a firm commitment and a, an important part of our franchise to be able to talk intelligently about the secondary and articulate why we think there's, you know, the, 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 the funds that we've launched are, are, are good buys and, and worthy of the cash flow that they're distributing. I mean, I completely agree with all that. Maybe I would just add that from um, a perspective of distribution. I think with distribution also comes marketing um, client surface, which has to do with the aftermarket support, but also just educating the investor base. I think with this new structure and with the new fee um, NAV pricing, I think there's a lot of work that has been done by some of the more recent funds in terms of educating advisors and clients that, you know, this is not necessarily maybe a closed-end fund that you're used to have seeing in the past, whether it relates to fees or leverage or structure, but, you know, taking the time to educate um, advisors about those changes and really what your strategy is trying to achieve, right? For us, having a 12-year term, yeah, we all want to have long-term investors within our funds. Um, so, you know, educating up front about what the fund is trying to do, but then also, you know, once they do own it, the idea is to hopefully have the investors stay in the fund over that term so they can realize the fullest potential of the strategy from both an income and a total return perspective. And, you know, Michael, turning to you now, um, you know, through the, through the time period that I've been, we've been doing this really, you know, you've seen listed closed-end funds come out. You've seen them typically trade at a discount. Some will be close to NAV. You, you know, you kind of get one shot in that IPO to raise your capital because follow-ons are very, very difficult. Um, or you can do a rights offering. Or you can, there are other ways to, to, to get equity when you're at a discount, but they're very limited for closed-end funds, as you all know. You know, I've always wondered when we had a lot of funds trading at persistent discounts and the focus was on, you know, the share price, whether that was the right focus and whether the focus and the education shouldn't, shouldn't have been geared more around total return and income um, and whether there's always been a bit of a marketing issue in this industry that we've never fully, um, you know, confronted head on. I'm, I'm curious for your view on, on that and just aftermarket support generally and, you know, what your strategies are advising um, managers around this topic? It's it's a good question. I'm not sure I have really any novel ideas. Um, I, I think you told me that you did. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think uh, I think actually Gaston and Kristen just hit on it. I think the education process doesn't just end with the execution of the IPO, right? It's an ongoing uh, effort from the manager to continue to. Uh, make sure that the buyer base is familiar with the, the product and, and the performance of the product, but really in, in order of prioritization, the underlying performance is, is still key. And you know, that's not to say that there wasn't a mismatch between performance and the underlying fundamentals historically. There certainly was, uh, but, but really it's the delivery of that, that transparent kind of income over time, uh, avoiding those footfalls, kind of the basic stuff, but then really making sure, leveraging that distribution system, as, as Gaston and Kristen said, to make sure that the system is educated. I think mechanically, which is you know, probably what you know, is, is, is more appropriate for me to, to address, we, we've started to try to um, address some of that discount and, aftermarket, and negative uh, or, or unfavorable aftermarket performance in the context of the, the term structure. Uh, that still applies to something as long dated with a headline 12 year or 15 year, um, 
you know, I think w with w based on the view that while an investor can obviously go and sell it on the secondary market, there is this line of sight. Like, there, there is an opportunity for them to go and tender for NAV at some point in time. And so we do think that's helpful. I think that the question will become even more relevant if we do migrate back to perpetual vehicles. And so what tools could managers potentially leverage over time to the extent that uh, we get there. And you know, I think per perhaps considering borrowing some of the technology from the Interval Fund product or from C Corp land, where you know you, you can go and, and leverage open market buybacks. I think that always was, you know, academically uh, I struggle with because it's so hard to establish this permanent capital base that, you know, to, to consider going to destroy it um, in a you know, to put it one way, is, is a really challenging thing to get comfortable with, but perhaps it, in some situations, from a return perspective, it's the best use of that capital. And so I, I do think, uh, particularly if we start to get longer, longer um, in, in terms of structure, we will start to see adoption of, uh, of programs like that as a means to, uh, to mitigate discount. I mean, do you think that, that managers and, and products get credit for Things like fee waivers, you know, fully covering the dividends, um, expense support. I mean, does that help you in the secondary market in these products? Yeah, I, I absolutely think it does. The the fundamental issue that exists in the listed closed end fund world, in the the BDC world, in the REIT world, for externally managed vehicles is is incentive alignment. And while you know, I, I think some onlookers to the listed closed end fund market would be skeptical as to whether or not an end retail investor is kind of um, smart smart enough to, to kind of know every feature within an expense base. I, I think the market generally is efficient enough to know that. And so all of those things that you mentioned are, are very important and top of mind for investors. And I guess, um, you know, in terms of research, this, uh, I think the industry has in pockets great coverage, but, you know, I, I've always felt there could be more. Um, how do you view research and, and you know, how do you view that aspect of it when we're talking about public closed end funds? And I obviously want to be careful when I say I can't believe a lawyer asked me that yeah, question. Yeah, yeah, but, but uh, you know. Not we, a lawyer, I've just. Yeah, <coughs> we, we have, <laughs> I know we've got representatives in the room and have spoken on other panels. I think we continue to believe it's a critically important um, part of the ecosystem in, in, in including that in the spectrum of the education process. I think uh, particularly for the retail community, it, it is a kind of a go-to uh, resource that, that is an extension of the strategy group that sits within firms like Morgan Stanley uh, and some of our partners across the street. What is your, the latest view on various asset classes that could be relevant to the uh, to the particular fund that that they're looking at or, or own, uh, but but I think retail I mean, the, the research um, you know it, initiative continues to be yeah. extremely important. Um, same kind of question for the two of you down there, where you know how do you how do you like how do you think about that you know from the from the asset manager perspective the importance of coverage. Yeah, I, I would agree with Michael in terms of it's an important research in particular is important uh, piece of the eco ecosystem with, with, with regards to closed-end funds. Uh, fee waivers, too, I think those are subtle, but um, in many ways, the, the structural features that are just right in front of the investor's face, I think those are what keep closed-end funds trading honestly and, and, more, and better in the secondary market. And Michael, I think you, you posed a good question about what happens if and when we do go to perpetual strategies, but in the, in the near term, I think the NAV pricing 
is one of those in-your-face um, structural enhancements to closed-end funds, as well as the term. Uh, the term feature itself, people know, you know the terminate, termination date for these closed-end funds, and they're going to be mindful of that termination date as the portfolio, as the fund seasons over time. Um, so let's, you know, in the couple minutes we have left, let's kind of talk about next generation products and ideas. Maybe I'll start with you, Kevin. Um, clearly this market tends to be cyclical, but we've, you know, it feels like we're at the beginning of, a, of another upswing. Um, you know, where do you think we're headed? Well, I, I don't think the pendulum is going to swing all the way back to four funds a month, frankly. Good. Um, <laughs> a couple of reasons for that, quite honestly, there aren't enough lead managers left. Um, you know, there's enough gray hair in here that you can remember. I mean, just 15 years ago, there were seven firms that could lead manage a closed-end fund, IPO. And today, there's probably four, maybe five, um, counting one of our very large regions out, regional firms out there uh, that have done it before. So I, I don't think we're going to see, regardless of how, how comfortable the market comes to these enhancements, which do make a lot of sense for the shareholder, uh, you're going to see that much. What I think is going to happen is we're going to see a marrying of the structures. I think they're going to be the benefits of the less liquid vehicle, the benefits of the listed vehicle. We're already seeing the gatekeepers tend to merge at some firms uh, between the decision makers as to what vehicle we're going to do, and it's the same people deciding. So I think you're going to see the best of both worlds, the best of each structure coming together for a new type of uh, enhancement to these funds. I like that optimism. Michael, what about you? Yeah, listen, I, I think Kevin's obviously got a more educated view. I, I think from my perspective, which is really the, the listed world, it is evident what Kevin just described. I think every manager that we speak to, some, some of whom aren't necessarily married to a 40-act vehicle, they're trying to devise a structure that is tax advantageous, that is permanent, um, and and will consider a range of, of alternatives across insurance products, across European vehicles, and, and often we do migrate to kind of 40, 40 act structures, listed or unlisted, and it is apparent in partnership with some of our wealth management colleagues that are in the room that we're trying to get as inventive as possible to achieve the objectives of managers, and, and there is likely to be more innovation to come, but, you know, I'm not prepared to kind of define it for you. Okay. Gaston? I'd agree with uh, Kevin, echo what he said. I think you're going to see the best of both worlds. On the interval side, you know, you can, you can capture off-the-run assets that, that fit nicely for investors who don't mind giving up or sacrificing a little uh, liquidity, but liquidity is still going to be key and yield and income is still gonna be key for, for listed closed-end funds going forward. Kristen. And I think because of that, because of those changes, um, I think we've seen a lot broader investor base enter the closed-end fund space, certainly for our most recent fund that we did in March, um, as opposed to our historical closed-end funds that we've been doing for the past 15 years or so. So, I mean, there's certainly numbers behind um, that potentially suggests that there are maybe more strategic long-term investors entering this space because some of those structural changes, whether it's the term or the fees, um, and I think we saw a lot of advisors and clients implementing our most recent fund in a sort of more thoughtful way in terms of part of their overall asset allocation than rather maybe just viewing it as um, a trading strategy. So 
Um, I think both what Kevin and Gaston said leads to that benefit for the investor. Great. Well, um, I've actually, we have actually kept us right on time. <laughs> And conveniently, there is no time for questions. <laughs> but you all, you, you, know how to, you know how to find us and where we live, so I'm sure that we'd be happy to answer any questions um, at some point. Uh, thank you all. <laughs>